Philip is told by an angel to go to a particular road. And Philip listens to the angel and goes. And on that road, there was a chariot, I suppose parked for the time being. And in the chariot was an Ethiopian official who was in charge of the royal treasury of Ethiopia. And this official, who remains nameless throughout the story, had come to Jerusalem to worship God and was returning home. The Holy Spirit then tells Philip to go over to the chariot. Philip goes and stands nearby and hears the Ethiopian official reading out loud from Isaiah. Philip then asks, do you understand what you're reading? The official answers back, how can I unless someone guides me? And then the official invites Philip to join him. Now, after reading a section, specifically, he reads from Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. The Ethiopian official then asks Philip whether the prophet, Isaiah, is referring to himself or to someone else. And the passage that the Ethiopian official read is from one of the four servant songs, which are found in Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9, Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 13, Isaiah 50, verses 4 to 9, and Isaiah 52, verse 13 to 53, verse 12. These four passages didn't come to be known as the servant songs until a scholar named Bernhard Doom identified them that way in 1922. Okay, so it hasn't really been that long when you think of all the Christian history. Now, interestingly, the servant songs aren't actually songs either. Um, they're simply part of the poetry of Isaiah. Most of Isaiah is poetry. Um, and Bernhard Doom didn't call them servant songs either. He called them servant poems, but it's likely that uh, English readers mistranslated the German word for poem as song. <laughs> and so that's how we got servant songs. But servant songs has a nicer ring to it so, uh, than servant poems, so it stuck, I guess. Um, ever since 1922, when he proposed uh, a whole bunch of theories about these servant poems, um, this great debate came out about these songs that has echoed the Ethiopian official's question to Philip that was asked close to two millennia ago, about whom is the prophet speaking? Or more directly, who is the servant in the servant songs? Now, we actually get a really great summary. I did some research into this and figured, uh, found a really great summary uh, that was written by another scholar named Christopher North, and he wrote this summary in 1948. So this is a question that's been around for us for a while. Um, and he, his book that was called The Suffering Servant in Deutero-Isaiah, or Deutero means second, so the second uh, part of Isaiah. And I won't get into why it's second Isaiah or anything like that, um, but it was summarized in, in there. What he did is he summarized about 50 years of debate about the identity of the servant, and some of that debate even predated uh, Doom's theories about there actually being these songs. But who is this servant that kind of pops up in this second part of Isaiah? And North found that scholars in the first half of the 20th century were all over the map on how to answer the question of who the servant was. And I want to just give you a list of who some of the scholars claimed the servant could be. And don't worry if you don't recognize all of these names. I'm not going to stand in judgment over you for not recognizing some of these names that are in the Bible. Um, but you could just hear them, okay? So these are some of the people that were proposed by scholars in the first half of the 20th century for who the servant might be. Uh, Eleazar, 
Zerubbabel, Jehoiachin, Moses, Ezekiel, Hezekiah, Jeremiah, Uzziah, Cyrus, and also Isaiah himself. And then there was some people who, uh, they, they were proposed that the servant might be a group of people that, um, that are not specifically named in the Old Testament. But there were proposals that perhaps the servant is, a, is simply an unknown teacher of the law. Or perhaps the, the servant is an anonymous messianic figure, but a messianic figure that was actually had already been born in the prophet's time. So he's actually talking about someone that he can see or experience or know about. Um, another theory is that the servant is actually a personification of the collective Israel. So when the servant is talked about, it's actually talking about all of Israel. Uh, another theory was, well, it's not really the collective Israel, but an ideal Israel, what Israel is supposed to be like. Another theory was, well, no, it's not really an ideal Israel or the collective all of Israel, but a pious remnant of Israel. So when maybe when some of the Israel is taken off into exile, it's whoever remains faithful to God out of Israel. Some, though, said, no, actually, this is about a future messianic figure that is to come. And yet others said, really, this isn't, we're not supposed to uh, directly correlate this to any particular person or group, but the servant is a mythological or symbolic figure in the text. So I just gave you a really quick summary of about 50 years of debate around this one question. So, so who is it? What's the answer to the Ethiopian official's question. Now, the Christian might want to immediately jump to identify the servant as a future Messiah, at least future from Isaiah's point of view. In other words, Jesus is the servant in the servant songs. But I'd like you to remember that each of those early 20th century scholars that North cited were all themselves Christians trying to solve a puzzle that's presented by a very ancient text. Now, we also may want to be quick to claim that actually Philip gives us the answer right there in Acts. Philip answers the servant question identity with Jesus. Jesus is the servant. Isn't that what Philip says? And so shouldn't we say that? But on closer examination of the exchange between Philip and the Ethiopian official, we find that Philip didn't simply jump to Jesus. Rather, we're told this. Philip began to speak. And starting with this scripture from Isaiah 53, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. We don't know whether Philip drew a direct correlation between the servant and Jesus. What we do know is that Philip pointed someone who did not know the good news toward Jesus by using this text. Now, had the... Ethiopian official been reading a different biblical text, surely Philip would have still pointed him to the good news about Jesus using whichever text was at hand, wouldn't he? So this actually, this exchange between Philip and the Ethiopian official, it tells us less about the servant songs and actually more about the truth that we cling to that all scripture in its entirety points to Jesus Christ. Now, whatever Philip said to the Ethiopian official, we have to see that the Holy Spirit was at work in the man's heart. Philip told him the good news about Jesus, and as they drove along in the chariot, they saw some water by the side of the road. And the official stops the chariot and says, what's to prevent me from being baptized? This is really quite remarkable that this is what happens. The official makes a connection between the good news that Philip shared with him, drawing on the servant's song, 
he makes the connection between that good news and his own participation in the good news. And he makes that connection in an instant. The Ethiopian official is basically saying, if what you're saying is true, Philip, then I should be baptized right now like anyone else. This makes a powerful statement about the good news. The good news, as Philip told it, must have been focused on the fact that anyone could be part of God's covenant people through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus had made it possible for more than Jewish people to be in this covenant, and it was now a done deal. In fact, in Deuteronomy, eunuchs are banned from God's people. And here's an Ethiopian eunuch who is now saying, well, if what you're saying is true about this good news, then shouldn't I be baptized right away? Shouldn't I be included because of what you're saying? Quite remarkable. I don't actually think that Philip was asking the Ethiopian official to make a choice or to accept Jesus into his heart. I think Philip was simply telling him that God's grace was available to him without the requirements of adhering to law or custom. God's grace was for him because of Jesus, period. Nothing could stop God's grace for that man. And I think Philip was just telling him that, not trying to get him to do anything. But then the official, he makes a request for baptism to be part of God's covenant people in Christ now. And I think the official's request, no, his, his demand for baptism, because he demands it, I think it came from his joy and enthusiasm to participate in the life that God was now offering in him. I think he's saying this, if this is really true, then I'm claiming it. Try and stop me from being baptized. Look, there's some water. I'm in. In both senses. <laughs> now, we could spend an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out who the servant is in the servant songs. And we could try and answer the Ethiopian official's question. Is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? And we could try and piece together, well, what exactly did Philip say? And whether he began by telling the official that the prophet was in fact speaking of Jesus. Let's try to answer a scholarly debate that still continues. Or instead, I think we could ask a different who question. Rather than asking, who is the servant? Today we may ask, who are you in this story? Philip and the Ethiopian are strong characters in what is a wonderful narrative told by a master storyteller. Which one of them are you? And before you answer, let's examine the character of each briefly. The, the Ethiopian official believes in God. Uh, he worships the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he's not uh, one of the Jewish people. He reads from the Bible, and he tries to understand it. And at the beginning of our story, he does not yet know about Jesus, or at least he does not know the implications of Jesus and the good news. He is a seeker. That's what he is. 
He's interested in God. When he hears the good news, he's actually ready to receive it. And it has a changing effect on him. Philip acts as a mentor for the Ethiopian official. He helps a seeker find. He explains scripture through the lens of Jesus and the gospel. Philip proclaims the good news in the conversation. And in so doing, Philip also reaffirms his own belief, his own convictions about God, and especially about Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus is to be found at the very center of Philip's convictions about God. And when the Ethiopian official is baptized, there is also an effect on Philip that we can't ignore. What would have happened to Philip seeing this? He would have remembered his own baptism and had it renewed. So which one are you? Are you a seeker needing to find? Or are you a mentor who also needs renewal? Now, while this story is very unique in the New Testament, there's nothing else like this, its overall theme is not that unique. One mentors another in the gospel. This is essentially what Jesus told his disciples to do when he commissioned them to go out into the world and make disciples of all manner of people, everyone. That's basically the command of Jesus, one mentoring another in the gospel. Now, the church in the West went through a time when we shied away from this and we're maybe still in that time or, or we perhaps felt that it was no longer really needed um, because, look, there's churches everywhere and uh, it's just part of the, the culture. Institutions took care of it, right? The church as, a, as an institution just took care of this, helping people uh, know about the gospel and about faith. Um, the culture took care of it. Uh, you know, you could have prayers in schools and lots of us are angry that there aren't any more. But, but really, it was just, well, okay, it's being taken care of. So we don't really have to worry about it on a personal disciple level, right? But I think now, mentoring others in faith is very much needed. Every Christian at one time or another, I think, can see themselves in this story. Every believer will, at one time or another, feel very much like the Ethiopian official, not quite understanding, but seeking and hoping that the seeking is not hopeless. And my hope is that every seeker and mentor will gain or regain an enthusiasm for faith that's on display in this passage. You can't stop me from being baptized. The hope is also that every Christian will have the opportunities to be Philip, to share the gospel with someone who has not yet heard it. And the opportunities for this are more and more frequent in our world, aren't they? Now, the church as well, as a group, I think, needs to find ways of walking alongside seekers the way Philip walked alongside. And it's not as though the church has never done this before. I think we've simply forgotten one of the most powerful ways that this is displayed is during the season of Lent. For much of the history of, of the church, people were baptized on Easter Sunday or at Easter Vigil on Saturday night. And quite often, people were only baptized at that time of year and no other time of the year. And this is still true in many corners of the church. Now, also for much of Christian history, those to be baptized or confirmed if they were baptized as an infant 
They went through a long process of preparation in order to go through the baptism or confirmation. And for many, this process was a year, sometimes as long as two years. The process was called catechesis, and those being prepared and trained were called the catechumenate or catechumens. And the final days of preparation to be baptized would be marked by fasting, prayer, and self-examination. Catechumens would ask these kinds of questions. Am I able to take a vow renouncing evil? Am I willing to take a vow accepting Christ as Savior and Lord? Will I, with the help of the Spirit, try to live a life of repentance in the home of the church, turning away from sin and turning toward God? These are self-examination questions. And they are essentially the vows of baptism. The final days of preparation coincided with the observance of Lent by the whole church, right? Because the candidates are going to be baptized on Easter. So the entire church would actually be praying, fasting, and examining themselves. The entire church would be focused on repentance, turning away from sin, and turning toward God. Essentially, the whole church would be walking with the catechumenate in their final preparation for being baptized. Think about that. The whole church was being Philip for the new seekers. Think of the celebration when the baptisms actually happen on Easter. I said this this week, I think in one of our times of, of study on our Wednesdays that, um, or it might have been at the Ash Wednesday service, um, we, we sometimes, when we have baptisms in the church, it's, it's wonderful and it's great, but sometimes as church members, you just show up at church on Sunday, oh, we're having a baptism today, isn't that nice? That's great, but just imagine this idea of we're all fasting and praying and at the end, we're celebrating with the newly baptized. It changes it. Somehow gives us more meaning to it. Think of the celebrations when the baptisms happen at Easter. All would have their vows renewed, wouldn't they? Because they've been focusing on it along with the people getting prepared for 40 days. All would remember their baptism and the grace that it represents. Now on Ash Wednesday, when uh, Lent begins, we are reminded of our own mortality. Christians receive a sign of ashes on their forehead or on their hand to remind them that they are dust, and to dust they shall return. Now, why do we do this? Is it to motivate us to a life to live life, to get on with living because time is short? Is it to scare us into believing? You're going to die, so you better believe in Jesus. I don't think either of these is actually that helpful as far as I'm concerned. The symbol and reminder of death, however, is significant. And it's once again related to baptism and the overall life of discipleship in Christ. See, baptism is a sign and seal of our union with Christ who died and then rose again. When we embrace our baptism, we are embracing that we have died to the old way of life. We leave that part of 
life behind in the waters of baptism, either washed away or more apt for our purposes here, dead in the water. It's gone. And we come up out of the water to new life. The pattern of Christianity is not live now for tomorrow we die. It's this. Die to the old way of life and be reborn in Christ. The pattern of Christianity is always a movement from death to life, not the other way around. This is the journey through Lent which begins on Ash Wednesday and ends on Easter Sunday. We receive a sign of ash, our death, on the Wednesday and then celebrate as seekers come through the waters on the Sunday to new life. We are renewed in our own life in Christ as well when we see that and experience it. This journey of self-examination, prayer, fasting, it's spread out over 40 days in Lent, but it's also found in a smaller form right on the Easter weekend. On the Friday, we remember Christ's death. On Saturday, we wait. On Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection. We don't always love the Friday and the Saturday. Particularly to my thinking, the Saturday. So I think what we normally do is we tend to ignore the Saturday. (laughs) So maybe we'll come to church on Good Friday in the morning and then, great. The next time we're here, we're having Easter Sunday. Isn't that wonderful? So we ignore it. But this is actually the very place of prayer and preparation. What will we do with Holy Saturday? That day is actually Lent intensified. Jesus is in the tomb, and we ought to place ourselves there too at God's mercy. We have died. And we're not doing the resurrection. We hope to witness the resurrection on the Sunday. We trust in God for it. And every year, we get this opportunity for this renewal, this journey through Lent, where we can reclaim our baptism, where we can die and rise with Christ. Every year, we check in with God to reorient our lives to him. Church traditions actually remind us that that journey is not meant to be taken alone. The seeker needs the mentor. And in many ways, the disciple needs the seeker. So that we can be reminded of the newness of life in Christ and what that really means, including the enthusiasm of it. Because some of us lose that as time goes by. The excitement of the Ethiopian official I think is infectious. Seasoned disciples of Jesus need more of that. Bring on those who don't quite understand if, what they're reading when they look at sacred scriptures. Or perhaps more likely today, bring on those who don't quite know what or who they are seeking. Because we have good news for them. And it's very, very good news. Throughout Lent, we will spend some time using the servant songs as our jumping off point, just as Philip did with the Ethiopian official. And there are certainly many threads to pull on in the servant songs without even ever looking at the New Testament. But we are going to take our cues from the encounter between Philip and the Ethiopian official. We're going to use this as an occasion to engage with the good news about Jesus, not just to conduct an intellectual exercise about some poetry from Isaiah. 
And we must start, I think, with the first thread of the Holy Spirit's activity. Philip is prompted by an angel to go down to the south road. The angel doesn't tell him why. He just goes. Then he's prompted by the Holy Spirit to go and stand near to a chariot, near enough that you can hear someone reading from the inside. And Philip doesn't ask why. He just goes. We need to pick up on that. We must listen for the Holy Spirit and must also learn to obey. Who is the Spirit telling you to stand next to? Perhaps you are to mentor them in the good news. There are also the threads of conversation, invitation, and proclamation. Philip and the Ethiopian official have a two-way conversation. Philip doesn't preach a sermon. But he does proclaim the good news. Most likely, you will be mentored or will mentor in conversation. You're probably not going to preach a sermon to somebody. Please do not preach a sermon to somebody. Who might need to hear the good news? Who do you know who is a seeker who you can talk to or even bring to church? I'm not saying they shouldn't hear sermons so that they can be exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who is that? Conversation, invitation, proclamation. We'll also pull on the thread of baptism. This may be an occasion for you to renew your baptism. I'm not talking about anything formal coming up here or anything like that, but I mean renewing it in your heart might be an occasion for you to renew your baptism, to be reminded of what it means, and to reclaim your vows. Or perhaps you've not yet been baptized, and this is an occasion to consider it, or like the Ethiopian official, to enthusiastically claim it. Finally, we will all hopefully claim the thread of enthusiasm. The Ethiopian official couldn't be stopped as he claimed the promise of baptism. I pray that if you do not have it already, that you will find enthusiasm for the good news about Jesus in your life. And I, this is quite important because I used to do this when I was younger, where I would look around at the church and I kind of judge people based on how I thought I saw them, thinking, oh, they don't have enthusiasm. We can't see in each other's hearts. And we don't know by looking. I encourage you to share it as you can. Not everybody's a sharer, you know. Not everybody's that person who's going to show it every second of the day. But that doesn't mean that it's not in there. <coughs> Only you and God can know that. I encourage you to share it as you can because it helps others, right? It helps other believers. It helps other seekers. Think of the story of Philip and the, Ethi and the Ethiopian official. Who's helped in that story? They both are. Now, we don't have any sense that Philip is this enthusiastic person. The Ethiopian official is, and Philip's faith was likely strengthened because of it. So embrace that enthusiasm that's within you, whether that's showing out or not. I pray that you'll remember the fullness of your faith and let it culminate in that glorious new life in Christ that we celebrate at Easter. Amen.